KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, The Burning Dreams of the 60s, from the underground Jane Collective in Chicago to the occupation of Wounded Knee. The brother and sister team of David Talbot and Margaret Talbot have written a new book about the 60s. It's called By the Light of Burning Dreams. We'll speak with them later in the hour. Also, the most powerful activist in America is dying. That was the headline about Addie Barkin in 2019 after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Now there's a documentary out about him. It's called Not Going Quietly. Ella Taylor has our review later in the hour. But first... Art Spiegelman has a new book out. He's done drawings for Street Cop. That's a short novel by Robert Coover. Of course, Spiegelman wrote Mouse, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. And then he did In the Shadow of No Towers after 9-11. Before all that, in 1980, he co-founded Raw, the avant-garde comics magazine with his wife, Francoise Mouly. Mouse was originally serialized in the pages of Raw. He's also done 36 covers for The New Yorker. Art Spiegelman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, what was it about Robert Coover's story, Street Cop, that made you want to do drawings for it? Well, it came along at exactly the right time, which is we had just moved up to uh, our bunker in Connecticut Woods uh, a day or so before the uh, lockdown happened, not knowing how long we were going for. So the only thing I really had planned to work on was my sketchbook, just to get my chops back, because I'd been mostly writing rather than drawing in the period running up to all this. But it didn't have any urgency to it, because it's just, there's a tree, learn how to draw it. Oh, here's an idea for a comic I may never execute further than in my sketchbook and make pictures for it. And then I think in late March or early April, I got a letter from Isolari, Isolari saying, Coover asked us to get in touch to see if you would illustrate his new work for a little book we're doing. And it's literally a little book, it turns out, which was part of the seduction for me of what all this was. It's such a nice format, and I, I really like books as objects. But beyond that, I was also looking desperately to not do drawings about Trump. I, I didn't want to go there. I'd done some, but very few compared to most of my peers, because I just had a great conviction that whatever you feed a narcissist, it makes him bigger. It, it doesn't diminish him. And so I was looking for elsewhere to go. And uh, then I wrote back to them saying, OK, I'll look at the manuscript. And as long as it has no mice or Jews in it, I'll <laughs> be glad to consider because I really admire Coover. Liked his work for a very long time. And lo and behold, no Jews, no mice. And best of all, it was a dystopia, but it wasn't the one I was living in. Uh, it was a dystopia next door. And so it allowed me to like approach and inhabit it. And I felt, oh, a small book, like really small. I mean, I figured, how long could that take? And the answer was because COVID year lockdown and a slowing brain that, uh, without ever having gotten COVID, definitely was filled with brain fog anyway. Um, it just ended up somehow or other taking me most of my lockdown year vacation, inhabiting or illustrating that book. So you call it a small book. What, what exactly is the size? It's smaller than my iPhone 6. I guess it's close to three by four. 
In any case, I inhabited it. I just entered in, tried to figure out how to make it interesting for myself and for others. And uh, it was perfect as a way, I thought, of just going into the universe next door that had its own problems, but it wasn't mine, which was true for about a month. But as soon as George Floyd happened, street cops were in the news. <laughs> yes. It, it either was uh, about that or it very belligerently wasn't. And instead, it really was just something proximate to that has to do with our street cops somehow because it is a street cop and it's a street cop in a world of robocops in the near present or present because Coover was very useful to me in terms of giving me directions that were easy to follow. I mean, one direction was, if there's something you don't like in the story, just draw something else. If you don't like it, well, just draw whatever you want. So that, that was rather open-ended. And then it was also, well, you know, it's a dystopic uh, story about the future, which means, of course, it takes place now. And hmm. that sounded right to me. And although neither he who finished that novella long short story at the end of 2019 in December was definitely on time. This thing still reverberates strongly with yeah. everything from surveillance culture to the casual lying that our government does by definition to the strategies one uses to avoid the present, which Coover and I were both doing in our own way while landing smack dab in the middle of it. Let's start with the cover. The cover features our protagonist, the street cop. He, he looks familiar to anyone who was around in the 50s and 60s and reading comics. Uh, who is he? Well, he's a grown-up sluggo. I did a lot of um, casting calls for what I draw the street cop like. And I tried things that looked a little like Dick Tracy and a little bit like just uh, uh, Broderick Crawford. And, and at some point... Sluggo came to mind because he seemed both raffish, tough guy, and quite benign at the same time as him being the homeless or living on his own uh, sub-sized boyfriend of Nancy in Nancy and Sluggo. And it's a strip I've long loved. It goes back into the 30s, and it has the advantage of being iconic and simple. And what I liked was sending it to Bob and saying, my God, that is the street cop. You're a genius. Um, <laughs> And for me, it was the street cop partially because I've done this before and I hear I was doing it again, which is retreating from the present into the past that gives me comfort. Most of the illustrations went there. They come from what Coover in his book calls the old part of town, which is the only place this unhappy street cop who only became a street cop to avoid getting a jail sentence for dealing drugs. They wanted a street cop rather than another prisoner. So he took, as always for him, the line of least resistance. So he was a street cop, but um, he didn't have a, a commitment to the vocation. And his uh, pleasures consist of finding the old part of town in his dystopic world, uh, where I think the way Coover phrased it at some point was, uh, it was no better than ours, but it was uh, the one he could feel comfortable with that perhaps was more forgiving of his failings. <laughs> uh, it wasn't phrased exactly that way, but that was the essence. And I felt the same way. So I just went into the old part of town to survive my own dystopia. And there it was ready to ready for action. Uh, and that was fun to cast. Find, okay, there's, there's characters like... Uh, the person who's the proprietor of a zombie uh, pet shop. And I found that the old host of uh, Tales from the Crypt was perfect <laughs> for, for that role, for example. I, I, I want to stick with the street cop on the cover just for another minute. There's a gun in his hand. Where did you get that gun? 
Oh, basically from the Buck Rogers era future, because if you're going to live in the old part of town, the Buck Rogers era is the future, see? So I, I had to both be in the present, past, and future, but my future couldn't get too much past the 1960s. Uh, and maybe that was realistic, because I still don't know what our future actually is. It seems like we're hovering in a lull between several storms. Just to keep the story part coherent, if people are trying to follow any of this, um, He's the only person who can find the old part of town at will just by uh, predisposition. It's not on the uh, app map that uh, <laughs> is issued on the phone, and nobody can find it because buildings in this world are all, they can get up and walk around and move to other neighborhoods. My favorite drawing, aside from the cover, is Nudie Night at the Bar. It's just a feast of characters from comics past, all of them naked. Uh, let's start with the overweight, wrinkled, older woman with a familiar hairdo in the foreground. Who is she? His old girlfriend, Nancy. And uh, <laughs> as one of my cartoonists once said, my God, having seen Nancy now, I'll never be able to <laughs> And is that Mr. Natural in the corner? No, it's not. It's the person that Mr. Natural was based on. Back in my old part of the town, which is the 1930s, there's a comic strip called The Squirrel Cage, uh, which had a little hitchhiker who was half pint size and would uh, always be trying to get through this surrealistic landscape with his thumb out and saying only and always nov schmoz kapop. Cross between somehow Crazy Cat and the old Popeye comic strip. It had <laughs> surrealism and uh, marijuana smell that inhabited Crazy Cat and squirrel cage anyway it's a wonderful strip so it was in my mind and he was perfect to make into a big bouncer and there is a, a mouse in in the uh in the frame it, it's not your mouse it's not mickey mouse it's the other great mouse in the history of comics ignats from crazy cat of course we love and revere crazy in ignats they they represent the comics at their most highbrow nancy and Slu sluggo are definitely lowbrow is that fair I think it is fair, although I'm not sure that uh, Harriman would accept the highbrow definition that gladly. I don't think he knew which brow he was. <laughs> um, and none of us knew that he was actually black back in the day. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's that. But for me, it was like a real small afterthought because I tried to make, since I was working relatively small, even for this tiny book, uh, I had a spare inch and wanted to fill it with something. And there was Ignatz, just the right size to sit on a bar stool. And as another cartoonist pal of mine pointed out, my favorite was seeing Ignaz's genitals. <laughs> uh, can I ask you about your controversial New Yorker covers? Sure. Your first New Yorker cover, it was unforgettable, a Hasidic Jew kissing a Caribbean-American woman. At the time, the two ethnic groups were facing off in a violent conflict in Crown Heights, neighborhood of Brooklyn. I understand the Hasids didn't like your drawing because their men are not allowed to touch women who aren't their wives, much less kiss them. And some people of color didn't like it either. They took it as a suggestion that they should just kiss and make up with, with the Hasids and everything would be all right. What did you think this meant? I thought everybody should kiss and make up. It was Valentine's Day as a cover, in fact. So it was uh, talk about moving into other alternate dimensions next door to ours. Why not? But... I, I had to understand why they were offended. I thought they just didn't want the Hasids to have a monopoly on offense. But uh, <laughs> in part, I think it had to do with the rumor that Hasids were picking up black hookers underneath the Williamsburg Bridge. 
but I didn't even know that at the time. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, but I wasn't clued into the uh, Williamsburg after dark life. So I didn't know that. And um, I thought it was a rather benign cover. I, I had no idea it would be that controversial. And it sort of launched controversy into the pages of Tina Brown's New Yorker magazine. Yeah, the New Yorker covers were very staid and respectable and elegant up uh, up to that point. Of course, your the most controversial of all was your 1999 New Yorker cover showing a cop at a shooting gallery and no caption. If you look inside, it said the title was 41 Shots, 10 Cents. The context of this was that a New York cop shot an unarmed and innocent black immigrant 41 times named Amadou Diallo, a name well-known to people of a certain age. I understand the mayor denounced your cover, the governor denounced it, 250 cops picketed the New Yorker, and the New York Post addressed you directly in an editorial, quote, if you are burglarized or your family is menaced by thugs, you should be consistent. Call Al Sharpton instead of 9-11. See where that gets you, Spiegelman, you creep. Close quote, the New York Post, 1999. I wouldn't say they misunderstood this cover. No, no, but they misunderstood my affection for Al Sharpton. <laughs> I don't think the New Yorker has ever been picketed before or after because of a cover. I was very proud of the um, Street Cop cover because at the time that that event or those events were happening. It had sort of been vaguely in the news, but it was mainly considered of interest to the minority involved, to the black folks involved. And then this cover comes out, and around that time, all of a sudden, it became kind of radical chic to go down and protest at City Hall. So Susan Sarandon was there and many other people, and it became a citywide thing. And I thought that the cover actually was a catalyst for a lot of that. And in fact, I was especially proud of little bootleg badges that were being sold on the street of that cover that were being proudly worn as the protest sign for it. And the really, if I can pat myself on the back, the smart thing about that cover, which was done very quickly because uh, of the rapidity of those events happening, was so this very friendly looking street cop who actually could have been my street cop if he hadn't been sluggo, apple-cheeked, looking like he came from the one-page fillers in uh, Superman comics or something, was aiming at uh, a shooting gallery that said 41 shots, 10 cents, because that's how many times Amdo Diallo's uh, shot at, was little silhouettes of people wandering by. They're just silhouettes with little targets on them. So that was this part where I felt really, oh, I got it, because basically they're all black, because a silhouette is black. Yeah. But they're not black because they're other. They're black because silhouettes are black. So uh, at that point, it was very very quietly but uh, firmly stated that our citizens are under attack by our cops, not black citizens who deserve it because they might burglarize you. And, and back on the other cover, all I was looking for was not controversy. I was just looking for an interesting image for Valentine's Day, and I'd started by just doodling Eustace Tilly, the monocled uh, mascot of the New Yorker since its inception. Uh, and I was going, I wonder what he'd look like if he was Hasidic. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just started drawing that, and then the rest of the cover fell into place around that. And then there was an, another uh, controversy that you got into, a cartoon that was in The Nation. 
Yes, basically around the time in 2014 that uh, the Palestinians were being um, in, were in collision with the occupiers of the West Bank, and I often try to like walk around these things because um, basically I'm a Zionist, not a Zionist, but and not anti-Zionist, but like agnostic uh, in that. On the one hand, I have to understand how come Israel got invented. Uh, it had a lot to do with my own family's background. Although I said it very badly for an issue of tablet once that got me in trouble as well, where I said something like, the Holocaust is the broken condom that gave birth to Israel. Oh, man. I can, yes. Vivid. Uh, so anyway, at that moment, I didn't want to do this. I just felt grateful that my parents had walked right instead of left and ended up in New York rather than Tel Aviv after they got out of the camps uh, and eventually resettled in America. But it seems so tragic as a situation, and it seems confusing to me. You know, like uh, I'm definitely in favor of a one-state solution should it happen, a two-state solution should, if it should happen, but I'm not happy with uh, a one state that's an occupier of another state's solution. It's just egregious. But anyway, here I was just being really upset in 2014, so I did an image that, if you, you won't have pictures, but I can, I'll describe it as best I can. Uh, it was called A Matter of Perspective, and it was a collage using an old picture of David and Goliath from some Bible book from the 30s or something with Goliath coming over the horizon at small David with a sling. And I found that if you cut out Goliath and put him next to David rather than perspective-wise far below, they're the same size. Hmm. And it's an old optical illusion, basically, because it has to do with perspective lines and scale that gets smaller. So it just said a matter of perspective. And I thought that was uh, more like a snapshot of reality. In fact, I think Goliath was a little smaller when you moved him up next to David. And I felt it was a useful snapshot and an image that helps you understand the uh, events through a different perspective. And nobody wanted it except my friends at The Nation. And <laughs> that happened several times to me over the years that <laughs> ready for another image nobody wants. By <laughs> um, God, they were. And the result was, I, I, I also had my wife put it up on my author's page uh, on Facebook, since I don't know how to use it, and usually it's handled elsewhere. So it was put up, and then I got all these likes, and I got really excited, and I looked, and like means we will kill you on sight, motherfucker, evidently. Oh, dear. So that, that was an interesting controversy. And then one more, as long as we're on the subject of the nation and controversies, um, I've been very engaged by uh, things that happened around Charlie Hebdo because yes. uh, they were brave enough to uh, reprint the cartoons uh, that led to a lot of years of wrath and bloodshed of the Mohammed cartoon contest in Denmark that I'd done a deep dive into to figure out what the hell that was all about. And as a result, they were eventually uh, shot at and killed for their troubles uh, the cartoonists who were there and they're the only people who reprinted it who did it for a good reason they did it because that's their job they're called the, the journal bet et méchant i think is their subtitle nasty and brutish basically drawings of the prophet not a problem because they're as anti-clerical as can be for equal opportunity anti-clericalism mm -hmm. and uh for their pains they got uh banned by uh, a, an insurgent group of pen writers thinking that they don't deserve an award, even though it's an award for 
First Amendment bravery. And if they didn't deserve it, who did? They'd already been firebombed and there they were again, uh, insisting on their right to draw these things. And, um, and their roots and mine are not that far apart, even though our targets aren't always the same and our approach to drawing isn't the same. So I stepped up at that point and I did a page called Notes of a First Amendment Fundamentalist, a comic strip about what it means to have that particular conviction as somebody who has a very young person felt that the Nazis had a right to march on Skokie, if anybody remembers back that far. And it started an ACLU membership that has been retained till this day, even though I loathed what they were doing. As it said somewhere in that page, if you don't protect the perimeter, there's no such thing as a center. Anyway, it appeared without incident in the nation. And sorry, this is way longer than you're going to want to use, but it's the river that comes with these. That's <laughs> okay. But what happened then was a magazine called The New Statesman had a special issue coming out called Saying the Unsayable. And I was asked by the guest editors, uh, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer, to do a cover. I said, ah, I guess so. But, you know, England would not reprint that First Amendment fundamentalist strip anywhere. And I gave it to all of my friends, The Guardian, the London Review of Books, and a few other places. Nobody wanted to touch this. So if you can have it as a strip inside the Saying the Unsayable issue, I'll be glad to do a cover. They promised, but they reneged at the last minute and said, well, we can't run it because we have to have unanimity among everybody on our staff in case they got in trouble for it. There was a picture, not of Mohammed, but a stick figure wearing a turban with an arrow saying Mohammed mm. being held up without turban and arrow, with turban and arrow. What the hell? The result was they wouldn't run it, but they liked my cover and they'd already had it up the day before. And I said they had to remove it. Yeah. So how about if we just, how about if we just put up the um, link to the Nation magazine? Well, that's pretty cowardly. Nah. So I pulled the cover, and then they accused me of welching on the deal, even though it was them that welched on the deal. Anyway, the nation has really been a good friend every time I get myself into a too tight a corner to be able to move elsewhere. Well, thank you for those, uh, and thank you for your drawings for Street Cop, story by Robert Coover. It's published by Isolari. It's not for sale on Amazon. Congratulations to you guys on that. You can order it directly from Isolari, Isolari. Uh, .com, Isolari ends with two eyes. Oh, and it's at The Strand and at uh, McNally Jackson and at Desert Island. And all of your favorite bookstores have it. Some of your favorite bookstores have it. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Art. Oh, thanks so much. Very painless. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. There's a new book about movements of the 60s and their fights for equality for people of color, women, and working people. The authors are a brother and sister team, David and Margaret Talbot. Their book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Second American Revolution. David Talbot is the founder of the pioneering online magazine Salon. He's written many books, including the bestseller The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. He's also been a senior editor of Mother Jones and a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. We reached him today in San Francisco. Hi, David. Hey, John. 
And Margaret Talbot has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2004, where she's written about lots of things. The current issue features her fascinating report on the campaign inside the Catholic Church to permit women to become priests. Before The New Yorker, Margaret was an editor at the late lamented Lingua Franca, where she edited me. She's won many awards for her writing. She's the author of the book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. We reach Margaret today at home in Washington, DC. Hi, Margaret. Hi, John. Well, you guys focus on leaders of different 60s movements, some well-known like Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda and John and Yoko and Bobby Seale, who of course was portrayed recently in the award-winning Aaron Sorkin movie on the trial of the Chicago 7. I'd like to focus here on some of the less well-known. You have a fascinating chapter on the Jane Collective, founded in Chicago by Heather Booth, who remains one of today's most important progressive leaders. You say the work of the Jane Collective was one of the most remarkable feats of grassroots activism and sheer chutzpah in the history of American feminism. Please explain the Jane Collective. Yeah, well, the Jane Collective was uh, just a really daring, audacious um, effort all around. I mean, it was these women who, in the era before abortion was legal, before Roe v. Wade, starting in the mid-60s, began providing abortions, first as a kind of underground referral service to to, to doctors who would uh, do these abortions, um, you know, secretly. And uh, later, actually training themselves, the women training themselves to perform the abortions. And um, these are not, for the most part, women who had medical backgrounds at that time, but they worked with these, these uh, male uh, providers who they learned from. They ended up providing uh, 10, about 10,000 abortions. They had an incredible safety record, and they did a lot of feminist consciousness raising with the women who they, who they saw. It had a very kind of mutual aid aspect to it. Some of the women who went through it also came back and had abortions themselves. And it was part of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, which was an amazing, vibrant and vital organization that had a lot of um, a lot going on, had a rock and roll band and a graphics collective <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. But um, but yeah, they really they, they were really an example of sort of stepping up and kind of doing for themselves, but also doing it with a with a uh, with a feminist ideology. And just to go back, um, it was it was founded, you mentioned Heather Booth, it was actually founded by Heather Booth, um, kind of out of her dorm room at the University of Chicago when a friend's sister needed an abortion and she um, uh, had come back from the uh, Freedom Summer in 1964, was uh, a little bit familiar with um, breaking the law uh, in a righteous <laughs> cause and was willing to do this and she got it going. Your chapter opens with the story of the bust, Chicago police detectives knocking on the door and eventually arresting seven of the people called the Janes. Tell us a little about the bust, the trial, the aftermath. You know, the Chicago police had seemingly kind of looked the other way a little bit on their operations because some actually uh, wives and daughters of, of of cops actually did come to them for their services at times. And so there was a little bit of looking the other way. But eventually they did run afoul of the law. They were arrested. Um, they got a very uh, uh, tough Chicago female criminal defense lawyer to represent them. And um, she dragged the case out long enough that it actually did not uh, come to trial before Roe v. Wade. And so when Roe v. Wade in 1973, January 1973, um, became the law of the land, they actually, uh, the case, the, the charges were dropped. 
And I loved your chapter on the American Indian movement at Wounded Knee, which focuses on Dennis Banks, Madonna Thunderhawk, and Russell Means. Let's talk about what happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1973. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out also to Leonard Crowdog, who died recently, uh, the spiritual leader of the Wounded Knee occupation. This was an amazing John resistance to federal sovereignty, to federal law. It was an uprising of the American Indian Movement in 1973 against the Nixon administration, but protesting the long, long history of broken treaties and deception and betrayal, and also the corruption of that particular uh, reservation leadership under a man named Dick Wilson, who'd been elected under very sketchy circumstances and ran a really brutal administration with a squad of kind of paramilitary thugs who proudly called themselves goons and went around shooting up the homes and roughing up people who opposed his administration. So AIM responded to the tribes people, uh, Lakota tribes people of that reservation. They were kind of shamed into taking action, the male leaders of AIM, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, by the women who said, look, if you don't take a stand here, we will. And so they occupied the sacred site where almost 100 years before there had been a massacre of over 200 closer to 300 Lakota tribes people by the regiment that had once been under the command of uh, General Custer. They were drunkenly and wantonly massacred by this regiment who later got medals for their own heroism, kind of a, a, still a stain on American history. And so they occupied the sacred site. They said they could at night still hear the, the moans and the cries of the dead. And so they were inspired to take a stand for 71 days. They withheld the full might of the uh, of federal forces, vigilantes, over a half million rounds of ammunition fired at them. These are men, women, and children occupying the site. Uh, amazingly, only two Native Americans were killed during this onslaught. But Crow Dog, Chief Crow Dog just said, uh, in, I was reading his obituary in the New York Times, and he said this was the greatest deed undertaken by the Native people in the 20th century, because it showed the, the amazing solidarity, I think, of the tribes people. And frankly, it, one of the things Margaret and I uh, go into a, a lot in this book is the kind of uh, bonds that were developed between movement groups. So before we started Zooming here, I know, John, you and I were talking about Bill Zimmerman, amazing guy, a uh, white guy, uh, grew up in Chicago, working class Jewish family. But he was kind of like the zealot of the left. He was everywhere. And among his many achievements was flying a small squadron of planes and risking his own life over Wounded Knee when the people that were starving, they'd been so cut off from the outside world by the military, uh, militarized police forces that they desperately needed food. And he led a small squadron of planes over Wounded Knee and dropped food to uh, the people below, risking, you know, uh, uh, death. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, the bags of food shears off part of his plane, uh, his tail, <laughs> and he barely was able to land it plane safely. Uh, anyway, these were the kind of, I think, uh, heroic acts that we found so inspiring in the book. As Margaret uh, said, Heather Booth and, and the risks that she and others took in Chicago were similar. 
we need to be inspired by this and also learn from the mistakes that were made. And, and, and they, of course, made many mistakes as well, these people. Yeah, one of the keys to your approach is not just the stories of heroism and the high points, but as you say, to talk about the mistakes, the problems, and frankly, the disasters around some 60s movement leaders. I appreciate especially uh, your chapter on the Panthers and what happened to Huey Newton. Of course, a lot of us who were around at the time took part in a lot of free Huey rally rallies. Huey did not end up one of our heroes. Let's talk about what happened to Huey Newton and, and what was the white witch? <laughs> Huey descended, uh, sadly, into criminality and gangsterism. <clears throat> There's no putting uh, a spin, a better spin on it than that. He was one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, very charismatic guy. I tell the story, as told to me by Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the party, when they first confront a cop on the streets of Oakland where routinely racist cops, violent cops, would shake down, harass, beat, and arrest uh, black citizens for no other reason than uh, they could do it. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, violence finally was resisted by the Black Panther Party. Uh, Bobby told the story to me, and I retell it in our book in a very dramatic way, where they first legally confront this cop. Uh, No one was killed, no gunfire, but they confront him with guns. And that was the amazing heroism, I think, and the daring courage of the Black Panther Party to do that. Now, Bobby wanted to pivot after that. He thought that would capture the imagination, the attention of the Black community in Oakland and nationally, and it did. And then he wanted to pivot to electoral politics and become basically a Democratic Party machine in Oakland. He himself ran for mayor in 1973 of Oakland. But Huey took a different path, sadly. Partly it was Huey's personality. He was always a hothead. Bobby talks about that with me. But he also, I think, life in prison and isolation really did a number on him. And I don't think to this day we understand enough about how these long, hard stretches of prison did psychologically affect many leaders of the movement. And Huey Newton was one of them. You know, Peter Coyote, who was a friend of Huey Newton, told me that he was a very different man, Huey, when he came out of prison. He did get into the White Witch cocaine. He got into drinking, uh, heavily drinking cognac. He began to brutalize other people, including Bobby Seale at one point. Uh, he ran a gang, basically, a, a drug gang in Oakland before he himself was shot on the streets of West Oakland by a younger drug dealer. A very sad kind of a decomposition of a guy who had once been very heroic and charismatic. And another one of the problematic figures who you face, quite frankly, in your book is Cesar Chavez. What was the martyr complex? That chapter was written by our, uh, my husband and our collaborator, Arthur Allen, who's not with us. I mean, he's with us in the world, but he's not with us on the phone call today. But um, anyway, we, we really wanted to focus on these turning points where, where uh, various leaders of the movements um, decided to do something pretty bold and pretty imaginative strategically and, and personally and so on. And, you know, of course, Chavez led these incredible hunger strikes. I mean, where he went on hunger strikes himself, where he really brought himself near near death and they were they were quite successful at drawing attention to the plight of the farm workers and to the boycott 
which was in turn quite successful at bringing people uh, across the country into the farm worker struggle and into support of the farm worker struggle. But I think partly because of um, those sacrifices he made and the kind of sacrifice he made of his own person, of his own body, uh, that contributed to, I think, a feeling of, of martyrdom and isolation and um, kind of extraordinary um separation at times from some of the people that he had come up with uh, and worked with and alienation um, from some of the from some of his um, fellow activists. So uh, I think in the end, he also um, made some unfortunate decisions, surrounded himself by um, people affiliated with, you know, some cult groups, you know, to do kind of uh, camaraderie building exercises that were that were kind of punitive and strange. And all of these people, and we talk about this in the book, too, all of them underwent quite a bit of, you know, surveillance, harassment, persecution by, you know, the FBI, by, by COINTELPRO, Hoover's program. And so that contributed also, of course, to many of them legitimate feelings of paranoia or, or of or of fear or caution, um, but also those the kind of feelings that can get out of hand and and, and isolate people. Well, I do want to um, uh, talk a little bit about the personal side of of all of this, David. I know you were uh, like a high school activist in the '60s, so this is a book in which you are writing about your own life. How did you deal with that? Well, in some ways, I, I was coming full circle. It's true, John. I wanted to make sense of this history, frankly, for my own uh, sake and the, those who are part of my generation, but even more so for the younger people. Uh, I have children, two sons in their 20s. Uh, Margaret has two children. Uh, and they're obviously uh, caught up in their own times and the turbulence of today. And we think it's important for these people, for the younger generation, to learn from our mistakes and also to be inspired by the achievements of the 60s and not get so grim and, and, and down that they see you, you can't make history because you, we did make history. I was a foot soldier in those movements. I knew I went to, like you, free Huey rallies. Uh, I went inside prisons inside Soledad as a Santa Cruz student uh, to teach prisoners and to raise their consciousness. And they raised ours, of course. Uh, I was involved in anti-war activities, got beat up, got arrested. And these to me were essential sort of paths that, that my generation, the best of our generation took. There was a great deal of heroism, of sacrifice uh, in my generation. I'm proud of that. And mistakes, yes, were made. Uh, and so this book, in some ways, was the culmination of everything that I've uh, been part of politically and written about politically over the last 40 years. And Margaret, you were just a little kid in the 60s. It was your older uh, brothers and, and, and sister, I guess, who were part of things. How did that affect your writing of this book? Yeah, well, I was born in 1961. So yeah, I'm 10 years younger than David. And um, I kind of grew up just, you know, going to visit them in their Santa Cruz, uh, you know, left wing socialist feminist lesbian collective and going to dances and, and demonstrations and um, as, as a kid, you know, and and um, I, I loved it, and um, I was treated with so much warmth and and uh, and and love by all those lefty hippies, and um, kind of raised by the by the village of them. In addition to our our own family, and I have always felt that I so benefited from coming of age 
age, then, you know, after second wave feminism. And, you know, now, um, as the mother of a gay daughter, I feel um, so grateful for all of the social and cultural changes that the gay rights movement, uh, LGBTQ uh, movement has made. So, um, but I did also feel as a kid, just a lot of longing to a lot of regret that I wasn't older and couldn't actually be, you know, out there in the thick of it. So this gave me a great chance to kind of re-experience it, uh, you know, vicariously as a as a popular historian, and it was and 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 somebody who had, yeah, lived in that um, penumbra of it. So. Hey, John, I should add one quick thing. Uh, I originally was doing this book on my own, and I uh, suffered a stroke in uh, the fall of 2017, and I knew I needed someone to help me uh, write it to complete uh, the book, and I couldn't think of a better person than my kid sister, Margaret. <laughs> to do this. And so I, uh, I asked her uh, if she would step in and Art, her, Arthur Allen, her husband, to help me out. And we became a team, a family team. And in some ways, it was like the collective enterprise <laughs> of our past. And I it, had a great time working with Margaret and with Art. It was just as smooth and a wonderful uh, collaboration as you could have asked for. So uh, I want to give Margaret a shout out. She didn't need to do it, but she did. She jumped in and she did a terrific job. Feelings mutual, brah. It was great. (laughs) I know it was really, it was a really joyful experience. And uh, I, I was, I was thrilled we got to do it. Well, David, it's great to see you uh, healthy today. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. David Talbot and Margaret Talbot, thank you for talking with us today. Thank Thank you. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. And she teaches at the USC School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, first up today, the most powerful activist in America is dying. That was the headline about Addie Barkin in 2019 when he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Now there's a documentary about him. It's called Not Going Quietly. What's it like? Uh, It's very good, um, often very funny, very moving, and obviously very, very sad because in 2016, right around the time that What's-His-Name became president, um, <laughs> Adi Barkhan, who was a, uh, already a very active political activist who ran a, um, a pack called Fed Up, um, whose aim was to oppose tax cuts, was diagnosed with ALS, which is one of, along with perhaps for Huntington's disease, one of the cruelest um, diseases that can afflict anybody, um, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. He was already quite well known nationally because he had a much televised encounter with uh, Senator Jeff Flake 
where he confronted him about him voting for tax cuts, which would take away, uh, which would exacerbate economic equality between the, the social classes and Flake was completely taken aback. So uh, Adi was, was quite well known already. Um, he was doing extremely well. He's a lawyer. He lived in Santa Barbara with his wife, who is a professor of English at, at uh, UCSB. His polar opposite, where he's extrovert and loves to perform and loves to be in front of a camera. She very clearly hates it, but she's also a wonderful wife who supports her husband in every way. They had uh, a son um, a little boy who's absolutely adorable and has quite a large role in the film. The one of the fe- the the more awful, if it, if so, it can be said, features of this illness is that um, one progressively loses one's voice, and that is kind of the leitmotif of the movie because, um, as Adi says, the. The the weaker I I get, the stronger I get. And as his, he decides to travel across the country, well into his illness when he's already in a wheelchair and and uh, losing his voice, um, for a new pack which is is called uh, uh, Be a Hero, and there uh, he transformed himself into an activist for the rights of the disabled. Uh, of all kinds, not just uh, ALS. He was accompanied by his best friend, an extraordinarily quiet, modest, but uh, diligent carer for um, for Adi, and also um, in the exuberant person of Liz Jaff, who was a political strategist who works with underdog candidates and is enormously creative and inventive um, in helping to train people to, as they put it, for bird dogging people in power, which is that they sort of waylay them at times when they least expect it and ask them all the difficult questions uh, and stick around until they (laughs) answer them. And much of the movie, the the documentary, is about them uh, traveling around the country. The dark side of that is that he's getting weaker and weaker and is also missing out um, on crucial time with his son, who's only a toddler. Um, There is only one mawkish moment in the documentary that I think was probably meant for a, for private viewing because I sort of felt as I was intruding where he comp- where Adi completely uh, breaks down at the thought that um, his son must be growing away from him as he travels across country, but he's absolutely determined um, to do so. Other than that, it's a wonderful, often funny, very exuberant and, and touching account of, of what it is like to try and be a hero when your faculties are melting away. You know, there are very, there's, no, there's certainly no cure and there aren't that many treatments for uh, his illness. So it can be very difficult watching how much he has to struggle until at last he gives um, a speech before Congress with virtually no voice left. I mean, it's not just the question that the voice box is damaged, but also that he can't breathe and talk at the, at the same time. It's enormously moving. 
he gets a standing ovation and and uh, all of that. Um, but it's also a very touching account of of his family life, of his wife's, you know, extreme reluctance to be on camera. She seems to be an absolutely wonderful person, but she agreed to him to this trip, you know, shortly before she was going to lose her husband. It appears they both have iron wills because he's still alive. I mean, he's, he's not touring the country anymore. He's back in Santa Barbara. They now have a baby daughter and he wrote a memoir while <laughs> this was going on. So he is a, a superhero and it really is a, a wonderful, I, I might say, extremely entertaining documentary too. So not going quietly, it's in L.A. It's playing starting Friday at the Lemley Royal in West L.A. and the Lemley Encino Town Center 5. And they don't know what their plans are for streaming yet, but I have no doubt that it will stream at some point. So now it's time for something completely different. Can you recommend something that is not about a dying political activist? Indeed, I can. Um, This is a television series on HBO called The White Lotus, which is about rich people on vacation. Now, this subject is not foreign to television or movies. We've already seen uh, Big Little Lies and Veep, for example. Um, But here the writer-director is... Uh, Mike White, who also made The Good Girl and a bunch of uh, other series, he's known for not pulling his punches and and he doesn't hear. So what we see is a lot of people unraveling in particularly broad comedic ways, but with an undertone of rage that actually makes the series extremely watchable. Um, There are also numerous layers to the ways in which they unravel. The main characters are, number one, a dead body, which appears sort of Agatha Christie (laughs) style right at the beginning. So we know that someone's going to (laughs) die during the week, and indeed we think we know who it is. Um, and that will not be resolved in in season one, which I've just, it's four parts, which I've just finished watching. But I'm not going to tell you who it is. Uh, first of all, there is a vastly dysfunctional nuclear family um, with a wonderful cast. Um, Connie, the wonderful Connie Britton from Friday Night Lights is the matriarch of the family. And she uh, says all the right liberal <laughs> things and uh, tries to keep control of this unruly family, but she's kind of compromised herself. She's very neurotic. Um, She's made a lot of money um, as a kind of uh, motivator, I suppose. Uh, And she's, uh, Britain is really wonderful. Steve Zahn is her oppressed husband, who's also completely neurotic. And uh, whatever stimulus he gets, he thinks he's about to cave to. They have a a son who is just a big mess, a teenage son, and uh, watches porn on his uh, laptop uh, until that fails him. And a daughter who is sort of reflexively woke, but doesn't really notice what's going on around her. That's the first group. There is also the staff of of this high-end resort in um, Hawaii, very high-end indeed. Um, with some wonderful performances from the Australian 
actor, or he may be a Kiwi, I, I am afraid I can't tell the difference, played by Murray Bartlett, who is a, um, a gay man who is also on the wagon, but falls spectacular off it um, when he's faced with some stretches. Uh, and Natasha Rothwell, who's very, very good as the kind of rock at the center of all of this. Um, there's also a young couple on their honeymoon, um, and <laughs> they're having a particularly painful time because the lovely young wife, um, who's played by um, Alexandra Daddario, she's very good, uh, as, very, as well as very easy to look upon, is discovering that the man she's marrying, the young man she's marrying, who's marvelously played by Jake Lacey. You may have seen him as a very sweet, supportive fellow in Obvious Child. But here he's a nightmare son of a, of a rich family who becomes completely obsessed with the fact that he thinks that the resort has cheated him. Uh, and during that um, obsession, his wife progressively finds out that he's not who she thinks he is at all. Um, but the... The starring turn of this series as uh, things fall apart for almost everybody on this vacation is a rich, lonely woman who is wonderfully played by Jennifer Coolidge. I'm a big fan of her in general. And here she's just terrific um, as this woman who wants to scatter her mother's ashes uh, in the ocean there. Um, and she has lots of brass to her but she's also there's also some pathos and I'm pretty sure that a lot of Me Too women will be watching her character carefully so long uh, to see whether they've just been very disparaging towards this character the answer is no but <laughs> again I can't tell you where this is all going to go um, so we see all their flaws and in particular the absolute indifference of the rich, no matter, no matter how many pieties they mouth, um, to the plight of who of uh, those who work there, and to um, the Hawaiian indigenous population in particular. There's a uh, the the daughter of the dis, of the dysfunctional family has brought brought um, her best friend supposedly with her. She's a young woman of color and she, um, although she's pretty privileged herself, she comes to realize with a, through a romance with an indigenous um, local who works for the resort um, that things are uh, not as they should be on, on this island. I'm enjoying it enormously. Um, it has received some criticism for being rather heavy-handed, and I suppose that that's probably true. But with Jennifer Coolidge around, uh, there is no getting bored. <laughs> the White Lotus, <clears throat> the HBO series about rich people on vacation in Hawaii, showing now on HBO, four episodes in season one. We have time for one more briefly. Yes, this is a, a film that's already playing on Hulu via Neon um, called Pig, um, which is a debut feature by uh, Michael Sarnowski. And although the film is not very good, it's another one that benefits from an absolutely outstanding performance. Um, you almost won't recognize him. It's Nicolas Cage, who 
when called upon, can act beautifully. Here he is um, a kind of wild man of the woods with long stringy hair. He rarely showers, if ever. Um, and he is his only companion in the Oregon woods, in the forest. He lives in a shack. Um, is a very large porker uh, who has an amazing talent for um, finding truffles on the ground. And truffles, as we know, are a very, I've never had a truffle, I don't think, but it's certainly the food of the rich. And that projects us um, and um, Nicolas Cage's character into the world of foodies. He himself it, it's quickly revealed, was once uh, a celebrity chef um, at the heart of the high-end food industry. And when his pig is stolen, he joins forces with a young man uh, who has a connection to the people who stole the pig in order to get the truffles. The kicker here is that uh, he's, he doesn't want his pig back for profit. He wants the pig back because he loves her. Now, <laughs> he loves her for a reason that in, if handled with greater sensitivity and delicacy, could be very moving here because he has suffered, a, it uncovers a real love that he once had. I mean, this is a real love too, but of a different object, but who he loved and lost. Um, I think it was about 10 years before, I can't exactly remember, but he suffered a terrible loss. So this is really partly about um, trauma and the legacy of, of trauma, um, but it's also a kind of populist uh, diatribe against the foodie industry. And that part of the film is awfully weak. Um, he is willing to take any kind of punishment to take his pig back. The film is shot in... Um, faux indie style, which means it's very murky and you can hardly see anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, after a while, his wordless taciturnity gets a little bit comical, although it's not meant to. <laughs> but uh, it's a very moving performance uh, by Nicolas Cage. He's very, he's very extreme, but also very restrained in his ex extremity. Um, it's not like leaving Las Vegas where you know, he totally <laughs> falls apart. And, uh, and it's, the movie is worth seeing for his performance. Pig starring Nicolas Cage. It's not like leaving Las Vegas. It's, uh, you can see it now on Vudu, also Google Play, Apple TV, maybe a couple other places. Ella Taylor is our TV and movie critic. Thank you, Ella. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh,